Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. This is the show where we get a balance of perspectives from the left, right, and center, which people say they want. They say they want rational, calm, interesting, engaging, fact-based discussion where people exchange views. And then they always opt for the shout fests in liberal media or conservative media. But we're going to overcome all that with our former Democratic Congressman, Paul Hodes, and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. You're giving coming- us you're giving us way too much credit for restraint, Matt. Come on. I mean, we can scream and we can, we can yell at each other. We, we got to crossfire this is what you're saying. All right. Let, <laughs> yeah, we can, let's I, I want to start by really stirring the pot by saying you both look really nice today and uh, you're very intelligent people and I respect you. OK, <laughs> let's let's get into it. Most of the media <laughs> politics today, as we record this on September 6th, is engaged in the biennial rite of passage, rite of fall, which is the curtain raiser on the midterms. Traditionally, I mean, this is so trite at this point, but traditionally, when you get past Labor Day, that's when campaign season really kicks into gear. You can see it in the spending from the campaigns. You can see it in how people really start to pay attention. You've kind of got through the back to school phase, and now people are starting to kind of turn their minds to politics. So the big question out there is kind of what we've been covering on the show in recent weeks. Where's the vibe? What do the numbers say? Where are things headed? So, Paul Hodes, I'm going to let you start in on this. When we last left our heroes, I think we all agreed that things were trending in the Democrats' direction, that it looked like pretty good coin toss for, for the U.S. Senate. It looked like still advantage Republicans for the U.S. House, and it looked like literally all over the map when it comes to secretary of state races, state legislative races and governor races. What are you picking up? What are you paying attention to as we start to enter the home stretch? So there have been some interesting indicators that I think support where we've been going. You, the recent special elections, Democrat won previously Republican held seat up there in Alaska with Sarah Palin, who was looking over the border at Canada and so figured that she was a foreign policy expert. We that that that's pretty interesting because that was a seat that was held by Don Young, who was the grizzly bear of of congressional politics. He served in, in Congress for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. So I mean he 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 basically had had his his grizzly bear heads nailed to the wall there in his office and he was an institu- a Republican institution. And when he went to a better place, the seat became open and it was hardly a seat the Democrats thought they'd they'd win, but they did. The person who won the race is a a person who was born in Alaska, a Native American American. So it's it, that's an interesting harbinger, and and I think that the trends that we've been seeing have have continued to pick up for Democrats. I don't think there's been any major shift since we last talked about this, but there's a slight trend that says Democrats are going to do better than we had feared, and maybe better better than anybody could hope, but that remains to be seen in terms of the economy. Gas prices have come 
pretty far down. I'm I'm paying $3.85 a gallon. Food prices are still up. We're not in the middle of a COVID pandemic surge yet this fall. The, the president is kind of on the attack against MAGA Republicans, which could fire up some of the Democratic base. The Trump investigation we'll talk about later on is may fade a little bit in, in terms of its intensity. But if you look at the economic news, it's not getting worse. It's getting better. And while the economic news is getting better, failing any other huge political disaster, Democrats look like they're going to do better than we thought they would a while ago. Alicia, what are you keeping an eye on as we start to enter the home stretch? There's so much going on and and a lot of it is emotional. Some elections are based on policy and politics. I think this election is going to be based on how we're feeling, how we're feeling about all kinds of things. Inflation is bad. We're going to start getting our heating bills. That's going to weigh on a lot of people. It's the mentality of if things aren't going well, kick the bums out and that'll bode well for Republicans. But the other thing is I watch TV and, and I'm in a very political district, congressional district, and everything is so negative right now. And I, I where I live, I cross two markets. I have New Hampshire and Massachusetts television ads and all over the place. And everyone is so angry. And one side is saying the other side hates you constantly. I'm seeing it on my TV screen, on my radio, on my mailers. I just keep being told that Democrats hate me and Democrats are being told Republicans hate you. And no one's really telling us why. Just saying, vote the other guy. And I think this is going to be an election based on emotion and how do we feel? I think how a lot of people feel, I think more people are going to sit home than we actually predicted because mm. no one's offering me anything other than I'm supposed to hate the other guy, whomever the other guy is. And I think that's impacting in a completely different direction that politicians want it to impact me. It's not motivating me to do anything. I'll vote because I always vote, but it's not motivating me or inspiring me. It, it's telling me I don't care. You all are mean and nasty and not providing me anything that's going to improve my life in the next two years. And I think that's going to have more of an impact than people predicted. I first want to just note that when Paul said a moment ago that when Don Young died, ending his service in Congress and going, in Paul's words, to a better place, given the views of Americans on Congress, he could literally have gone to hell and have gone to a better place. <laughs> the things I'm going to be keeping an eye on this fall, first of all, I think there are three major ones. First, it's the dynamic among suburban women. This has been where the action has been in the last two election cycles in 2018 and 2020. We've seen that movement around the views of suburban women has been the key kind of swing dynamic in the election. Once again, it appears that that's where the action is in 2022. We've seen in Wall Street Journal polling just out this morning that Women who identify as independents have shifted 20 percentage points in Democrats' direction since their last poll. Hispanic women have moved 15 points in Democrats' direction. Those are potentially very big deals, especially when you correlate that with the other things we're seeing in polling, <clears throat> the tremendous enthusiasm surge uh, and willingness to vote surge that we're seeing on the Democrats' side around the Dobbs abortion decision. So I'm going to be keeping a close eye on, on those numbers among women and particularly suburban women, and particularly in those Senate races that we're, we're all watching. Another thing I think is what Alicia just brought up, which is 
how people are feeling about the economy. This this seems to be a, a, an overall midterm dynamic that is coming down to do your feelings about inflation. Trump, no pun intended, but your bummed. feelings about Trump. <laughs> and for for months now, for most of this year, Republicans have been banking. I'm not saying it's Schadenfreude. I'm not saying they're 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 rooting for America to fail, but politically, R- Republicans have been banking on Americans feeling really down about the economy. I just had Dr. Joanne Shu on the show last week. She directs the Michigan University of Michigan Survey of Consumers. It's perhaps the most watched metric from economists, from people like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell. They really care how people feel about the economy because it has a real effect on what the economy is going to do. That metric hit its lowest point ever measured since 1946. It hit the lowest point in June. Since then, it has rebounded. And so I'm going to be watching that metric very closely. The September preliminary numbers are due out in 10 days on September 16th. Watching those numbers for September and October will give us real clues about where people are on that inflation question. And I'm going to be watching the actual jobs and economic numbers. OPEC just signaled that they're going to cut production of oil by 100,000 barrels a day. That could add to inflationary pressures on oil. On the other hand, on the other hand, we just got the latest set of jobs numbers, and it showed that employers added 315,000 jobs in the last month, and yet the unemployment rate rose. What does that mean when you have employers adding jobs and the unemployment rate goes up slightly? What it means is that more people are entering the labor force. And what that means is it decreases pressure on wages and that decreases pressure on inflation. So that's really going to be the big question to me is where are those feelings on the economy and do they supersede voters' feelings on Trump when it comes time to vote this fall? If, if I can just throw in here, but you just brought something up interesting that more people are entering the job market. Could that be because they have to? Mm, it could be. And and if that's the case, that's not a positive for people's feelings on the economy. The inflation has gone on so long. The cost of living has increased so much at set a, such a rapid pace that you could have people who didn't want to go back to work after COVID because, and we've talked about this before, they found a way to have a one working house, one person working household, or they didn't need a second job. And now they're taking that job because they have to because of the economy. So there's so many different variables in this, but here's the thing, Matt, you're a smart guy. You read all this stuff. You, you pay more attention and are more aware of these economic metrics than most of us out here. Most of us out here don't look at those things. Most of us out here look at the very simple things. We look electric bills. We look at our grocery bills. We look at our budget. We look at how many extra shifts a member of your family has to take to get by. And the reality is those are the metrics we're following, not what anybody out of the University of Michigan or anyone else says. It's literally just what happens in our household that will affect what happens in November. If, well, but, to but your that's point, what, but that's what the University the of Michigan stuff. is measuring. They're, what, they're, what they're literally doing is they're literally going out and asking people how they feel about their finances, can they afford things, how they feel about the cost of, of major items. So 
that is as good a consolidated metric. And it's been shown over time to be very well correlated with what the economy is actually doing. And so to me, that's just a, a very good kind of like easy way to get your finger on the pulse of in aggregate, what are people feeling? Like how how are they doing when they go to the grocery store? Are they feeling that pressure to to pick up another shift? Well, I grew up in a Buckeye household, so we don't really care what anything from the University of Michigan says. Well, I made that joke. The whole state of Michigan. I made that joke. The whole state of Michigan. I have know, a song. <laughs> so, so I, I'm I'm going to come down the middle on this. I agree with both of you about the, the following. I think voters almost always vote on emotion, not on issues. I think that Alicia is right that the negativity will cause people to simply tune out. Whether that means they'll tune out and still vote is an, an open an open question. But w- there is one wild card coming up, and that is going to be continued hearings on, from the January 6th committee. And whether that is broadcast on the major networks, I think is still up in the air in terms of whether the, the networks are going to carry the, those hearings. But those hearings could amp up the anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, anti-Republican fascist sentiment. And really, remember, most people are already, they know who they're voting for. We're, we're talking about a very small slice of, of question, of persuadable voters or voters whose votes are really up in the air. Well, I guess one other thing that, that's worth watching, if you want to get some tea leaf reading done, is what are campaigns putting on the air? And it's really interesting. I'm going to fully own that I was wrong about something that I wrote several months ago. I wrote that abortion was not going to be a major factor in moving the midterm elections. And by the way, I don't think I was alone in that opinion. I think some other people on this panel may have agreed that abortion was not going to be the issue But the proof of the pudding is in the advertising, because what you're seeing across the board is Democrats are putting abortion on the air. They're putting their money into that message. Republicans are not putting their money into the inflation message right now. They're putting their money into softening their image on abortion. And you see it because the leading Republican candidates for U.S. Senate who are almost all men. I can't think of a a leading candidate who's not a white man. They're all putting their wives on air right now. The ads that are running in Republican Senate races are candidates' wives talking about what a nice guy their husband is and how really not that stringent on abortion he is and, and how much he cares about women's rights. So that's something to watch is to what degree, I mean, if Republicans really thought and their internal polling was really saying, yeah, we can win on the inflation question, we can win on the pinch that people are feeling in their budgets, then that would be what they're leading their messaging with. Right now, it's not. Yeah, because they're wrong, but they're wrong. I I was one of the ones that said abortion isn't going to be a major factor. There'll be a few people who vote based on it, but it's not going to be a major factor in November. And I stand by that. And the politicians are wrong. I think the consultants telling them what to talk about are wrong. And I say that because I am a suburban woman. Me and my girlfriends have lunch. We don't talk about abortion and we are all over the spectrum on the issue of abortion. We do talk about which grocery store has the lowest hamburger prices. I mean, that is a fact. I I am the, the market. You are searching for politicians. And 
I think they're all wrong. They're talking about abortion. We're not talking about abortion. As I said, when the Dobbs decision came down, if you vote based on abortion, you're already voting one direction or another. You already already vote Democrat or you already vote Republican. If that was an issue that swung you, you would already be deciding who to vote for, regardless of the Dobbs decision. So the politicians, because they live in this weird little bubble and all their consultants telling them what to talk about, also live in the same little bubble, are talking about this. And we are not, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, if you are somebody who doesn't vote based on abortion, that is not what you're talking about right now. So the billions of dollars being spent around the country to tell us where you stand on an issue that is tertiary to most of us, not most That's of us, but most of us word. that you need. Tertiary. tertiary. It's a good word. I don't know does, where uh, I just dusted that one out of. I haven't does the FCC allow us to use words like that? Know. I don't know, but that's a good word. I'm going to actually write that down to use it again. I don't know where it came from. But for, for that 40% in the middle who are going to decide all these elections in most states, that is not what we're talking about. So it is no indicator of me just because the politicians are off base on what their issues are versus what middle America is feeling. All it says to me is, once again, you guys don't understand us. You aren't representing us and what our concerns are, and you are way out of touch. You mean you mean talking about abortion is like Dr. Oz talking about crudite? Yes. And and, and, and you're really you're the, on the, in the that Fetterman so camp funny. of the veggie platter. So that so, so that this election comes down to crudite versus veggie platter. Who in puts guacamole view? in a crudite platter, by the way? That's so pedestrian. Yeah, but it's still a vegetable. So it's a vegetarian there. Pedestrian. Wait, there's, a, there's another there's another 12 syllable word. What is that all intellectual today? What happened to me? You're you know what? You're you're coming <laughs> I, across I, as an elite intellectual. Shenanigans, Alicia Preston. You say you get together with your girlfriends. Where can we find hamburger meat? We're out foraging through the grocery stores. Hannaford, find, find me some affordable hamburger meat. The rest of the offerings are so pedestrian. I have to go to my <laughs> tertiary list where I can, where can I get some good crudite? You may, no, you, I'm sitting home may, reading may, books because I can't afford to go to a oh, movie because man. of my hamburger price. So I'm picking up all these big words. You know from what this reminds me of? The... This whole exchange <laughs> reminds me of that classic Monty Python sketch where someone shows up and there's a guy behind a desk. It's like, I'm here for an argument. And the guy says, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And it's like, no, you're. that's not an argument. I see what you're doing. That's bickering. And we just started the show saying, well, you know, what people seem to want in their audio and their video when it comes to politics is a lot of arguing, right? And it seems like we're arguing, but no, what we're actually we're not really bickering. From, from the pedestrian tertiary point of view, Alicia Burston may be losing her ground as the every woman she oh, pretends gosh. to be because, because, you know, the search for hamburger, ground beef, as it were. You sound is, like is, David Attenborough. You sound like you've just spotted Alicia Preston on the, on the Serengeti plane. <laughs> Alicia, I think your criticism was that politicians are talking about things that voters say, eh, it doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is, is this over here. You guys are worried about that over there. And so it's really, really interesting that last week, Joe Biden decided to stand up and draw a very bright line. Actually, it wasn't that bright. It was sort of dark and red and menacing. And there were Marines in the background. Draw a, a, a firm line between Americans, like regular Americans, and MAGA Republicans and call out the threat to democracy posed by the forces of Trump. Now, look, this is something, despite the fact that we come from different ideologies, different political parties, we actually agree on on this panel that there is a threat to democracy from Donald Trump and the, and the people who support him. 
And there is some polling support for the idea that voters care about this. They, they In the NBC News poll a couple of weeks ago, people actually said that this was their number one concern, even over and above inflation. But it's kind of a curious thing to call out threats to democracy as the major midterm campaign issue. And I'm not sure that the speech came across to the Republicans that Joe Biden might have wanted to reach and pull back from the brink the way he intended it to. Alicia Preston, you are one of those Republicans. You are a an anti-Trump Republican. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to that speech? But Joe Biden made a very big mistake, and here's why. And I am not somebody who supports Donald Trump, as listeners of this program will know. You can take on your political opponent. That is all fair game. And as President Trump is looking to potentially, I don't think he will, but word is he's looking to potentially run in 2024 again. Joe Biden is well in his right to take on a potential political opponent. You can't take on Americans when you're president of the United States. It is unhelpful in a divisive nation that we are living in, and it is not your job. You're supposed to represent everybody. And to take on, quote unquote, MAGA Republicans, 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. Are they all, quote unquote, MAGA Americans? I don't know. If I were someone who voted for Donald Trump, no matter how I feel about him today, I'd say you're talking about me. And you can't do that as president. You shouldn't do that as president. It takes a divide and it widens it. And it's inappropriate. You are no longer a political candidate as your sole job. You are a leader of this nation. And again, you want to take on a politician, you go for it. You take on his supporters. You're not talking. You want to take on insurrectionists who committed a crime. Go ahead. You want to take on people who are rioting. Go ahead. You want to take on people who are threatening the FBI or attacking them like they did, like one guy did a few weeks ago and got himself killed. That's very specific. That's fine. But you cannot take on and criticize and lament against 70 million Americans when you're sitting president of the United States. It was wrong. I don't support it. And, and, and I think he was completely misguided in doing so. It sounds like what you're saying is that this was a basket of deplorables moment yeah. for the president that essentially he thought he was delineating. See, there's another big word. That's another for good word. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The source for the show. Folks, Come for listen, the political analysis. The stay for the SAT prep. It, it's uh, Joe Biden thought he was setting apart MAGA Republicans from Republicans. But to Republican ears, what you're saying is you felt lumped in with a whole basket of deplorables. Absolutely. Paul, so, what did you well, make of it? Well, I think he took a risk and we'll see how that We'll see how it all turns out. What he said was absolutely true. He made clear that he wasn't talking about all Republicans. He was talking about the extreme, radical, right-wing, fascist, authoritarian, racist, anti-Semitic Republicans who have taken over the party. The challenge he faces is that the Republican Party has become a cult. It's being led by a treacherous criminal. Alicia may try to defend traditional Republican values. Traditional Republican values have fallen by the wayside in this country. They no longer hold sway in the Republican Party. Trump is being shown increasingly to be an unhinged person without regard for either the national security of the country or anybody else. And it's a real challenge when the very foundations of our democracy are shaken as a president to whether you stand up and say, Tell it like it is, which is what he did. I mean, we we're facing a fascist authoritarian effort 
on the part of Republicans who are willing to lie, cheat, and steal their way to the next presidential election. The party is bankrupt. It's morally bankrupt. They've got no legs to stand on anymore. And the more they try to defend Trump, the worse it gets for America. So Biden had a challenge, and it was a fine line to to tread in terms of calling out the fascists who threaten our democracy and making clear that it wasn't all Republicans. So he wasn't talking about Republicans like Alicia Preston, who as lone voices warbling in the wilderness with their anti-Trump positions try to, to pr- create some kind of soothing balm for those who would like to think the Republican Party has any hope of becoming what it once was, once it's been gripped by the insanity of this cult. So maybe he didn't, maybe it didn't work with Republicans. But for a lot of Americans, it rang true. And if, as we noted on the show, the threat to our democracy is what's on voters' minds and and the continuing criminal investigations into Trump are going to go forward and talk about the judge's decision later on. I, I think Biden didn't do any damage, and he may have set the stage for an honest, an honest conversation in this country about what fascists do, what authoritarians do, why the power grab by the lying, cheating, stealing Republicans is not a good thing for America. And we can have that conversation. To my mind, I don't object to what he was going for here, either politically or substantively, because the charge is true and very full of proof. As I said a moment ago, I think we agree on this panel that Donald Trump and the people who support him, his core supporters, represent a clear and present danger to America and democracy. We saw that demonstrated outright in the January 6th insurrection, a figure no less revered in the conservative firmament than Michael Ludig said that. He said that in testimony to the January 6th committee. He was considered for a time the most conservative potential nominee to the Supreme Court, even over and above Samuel Alito and John Roberts, who eventually made it onto the court. The fact that Judge Ludig said that about Donald Trump is all the testimony that I need and I think really underscores the point. So we agree with that. And I don't have a problem. And I actually support the president of the United States coming out and saying that if there's a threat to the country, he's oath bound. His oath to the Constitution to defend the Constitution requires him to oppose that kind of a threat. Where I think he maybe made a tactical error was conflating, there's another great word, was conflating democratic policy talking point with discussion of the threat to democracy. By weaving those together, he created blowback from Republicans who heard, even if this wasn't what was intended, Republicans heard, you're either with us or you're against us. You're either on board with our policies or you're a threat to the nation. And there's no comfortable middle ground where we can have a conversation. I get pushback. When I have guests, sometimes Paul and I host Beyond Politics together. Sometimes I do it on my own. And I also have the Great Ideas Show. I have a lot of conservative guests. I had the top Republican pollster, in my mind, in the country, Whit Ayers, on the show. I had Brian Riedel, a stone-cold conservative, on the show last week to talk about student loan debt. 
And people sometimes push back at me on Twitter and they say, Matt, you're a Democrat. Why are you platforming these Republicans? The answer is simple. It's because if we don't have partners who have different ideologies, different viewpoints, different different policy ideas, if we can't have conversations with them, then we truly are at a moment of civil war. Then we truly are lost. I want to fight with Brian Riedel and Alicia Preston and Whit Ayers about policy and ideology and ideas and outlook. I don't want to fight about the continued existence of the country. We should all agree on that point. And then we can have our disagreements about whether we should have a U.S. Department of Transportation or, or what, what have you. So I do think that that was a, a bit of a tactical error. I, I kind of wish President Biden hadn't gone that way. But that said, I also don't want to buy in too much to the loudest kind of MAGA folks online and their pushback on this. Make no mistake, and it was the it was the blogger Ala Pundit who is leaving the blog Hot Air, very popular on the right, and heading to the dispatch, who wrote at the end of last week, never forget, it's not the 30% of Trump worshipers within the party who brought the GOP to what it is. It's the next 50%, the look what the libs made me do zombie partisan who could have said no, but didn't. I said no, put it on my tombstone. Eventually, we need Republicans to stand up and repudiate not just Donald Trump, but everything that he stands for if we're going to free ourselves of this element that is a true, real, clear and present danger to democracy. Alicia's done it. And we need more Republicans to do it. It's not wrong for the president of the United States to call for people to do it and to draw that line. I just tactically wish he had done it in a slightly different way. That's my that's my rant. Anyone have anything to say about that or should we move on? No, I thought it was pretty profound since we're having such an intellectual show Ooh. today. That was pretty yes. good. I, I, I will point out as 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 some support, Matt, for what you said is. Even Maggie Hassan running for Senate in New Hampshire mildly criticized the president, saying that he had painted with way too broad a brush. And so if if there is a criticism to be leveled in, in the way his speech was received, it was in not being able to draw the lines with a fine brush, but painting with too broad a brush. I'm so glad. You brought up our good friend, Senator Maggie Hassan, because it does connect to another criticism of the speech and of the Democrats that also has to do with the upcoming midterm elections. New Hampshire holds its primary for federal offices very, very late in the cycle. The primary for the New Hampshire Republican nominee for U.S. Senate happens next week, next next Tuesday, September 13th. And in the run-up, we have talked on this show about the primary and the fact that Don Bolduc seems to be the leading Republican candidate, and he's widely viewed as too Trump supportive and the easiest candidate for Senator Hassan to beat. And so that's why the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee has come in with ads, $3.2 million worth of ads in the past week, trashing his next most likely opponent in the primary, Chuck Morse. And this is a pattern that Democrats have followed all cycle, trying to elevate 
the easiest to beat, in their view, Senate candidate for Republicans. So let me just ask you, is there, are, are Democrats playing with fire here? Because on the one hand, you have the president of the United States saying that MAGA Republicans, Trump supporting Republicans are a threat to democracy. They could, they could destroy the country. They could, they could bring us to a civil war. And yet you have Senate Democrats elevating these people and okay, they may be easier to beat, but if we end up with a whole bunch of Senate Republicans who are these MAGA types, then we've elevated them and put them in positions of immense power. Paul, what's going on here? Are, are Democrats like, first of all, is this hypocritical? And second of all, is this stupid? Second of all, it's stupid. First of all, it's hypocritical. I think it's a really bad idea. It's just bad. It's stupid. Spend your money on supporting Democrats, not on playing in, in races on the other side. I mean, although it's kind of deep in the weeds in its process, and it may not affect voters in in any direct way it just it just it reeks of bad of badness it, it's just it's so it's dumb it's a waste of money it's a waste of time let the voters decide what the voters are going to decide I, it just it just feels it, it it feels lousy to me i just don't like it how, how do you like that there it it just i mean give the money to maggie but put run ads, run ads for Maggie instead of spending millions of dollars trying to elevate. I mean, what are you going to say? You, you, I support. I'm a Democrat. I support Don Bolduc for the Republican nomination. Why? Because he's the worst candidate, and I want, I, I want the Republicans to have the worst candidate. And and people are going to look at you sideways and say, "Are you stupid? Is is that really a good idea?" The answer is no. It's a bad idea. Chuck Schumer, if you're listening, it's a bad idea. Stop it. Stop it now. Stop it yesterday. Don't do it anymore. Stop. Hey, I'm going to quote from National Review as we turn to Alicia. You ready? I, I don't do this often, but I actually do read National Review from time to time because, again, I like a, a broad intellectual diet in my life. In concerned tones, Democrats have taken to saying on television that if a majority of voters choose the Republican Party in the midterms, that will be, quote, undemocratic. Even as they spend tens of millions of dollars trying to ensure that the people they claim are a threat are nominated. Alicia Preston, over to you. I mean, what more can I say than what you and Paul just said? I mean, can we all just agree ethics in politics does not exist on either side? Like, like ethics is gone. Right. These people want to run our country, run our lives, and they have no ethics whatsoever. And look, it's not just that the Democrats in New Hampshire are trashing Chuck Moore so he doesn't get the nomination because they're concerned if he gets the nomination, he's got the best chance against incumbent Maggie Hassan. They're working in a congressional district as well. They've actually sent out positive mailers for the pro-Trump congressional candidate trying to elevate him so he gets the nomination because if he gets the nomination he's got a lesser chance against incumbent congresswoman annie custer and they don't want the other guy who's not the super pro trump guy to win because then he might have a chance like it's gross i'm with paul it leaves a disgusting taste it, nobody should be doing this let primaries pick people who vote in primaries pick their own primary candidates duke it out in the general election that's how it should be done it, it's people treating us like they're stu we're stupid it's people with no ethics or morals and they want to win without the pure vote of the people. Here's a controversial take. I understood this more when Democrats did it in Alabama with Roy Moore, the pedophile. Yeah, I understand 
as disgusting a figure as he is, I understand because you're basically saying, well, we'd rather run against that guy because we're pretty confident we can beat him. But there wasn't, a th- if he were elected, if we had a Senator Roy Moore, as revolting an idea as that would be, it wouldn't pose a, a danger to the continuation of America and to American democracy. But the votes of senators actually matter. If we end up with a President Trump, the votes of U.S. senators are going to really, really matter. And that's what we're doing here. So I guess what I would say is, I don't, as a tactical matter, it doesn't like make me throw up in my mouth particularly, but we're playing with fire. We are playing with fire because OPEC is reducing its supply of oil and things can happen. October surprises are called surprises for a reason. We don't anticipate them. Things could go badly. All of a sudden, races could look a lot better for Republicans. And if we've nominated a bunch of insane people who do not care about America and the Constitution, and they end up in positions of power, we are going to be complicit in the destruction of America. On that note, and speaking of the destruction of America, let's close with This Week in Trump, our recurring segment, because every week there's something new. There's a new low point to talk we about. We still need theme music for this segment. You know? Oh, right. Uh, well, I still think that it's creepy clown music, but I, I'm, I'm open-minded. <laughs> All right. So Trump won his lawsuit. A judge that he appointed, Eileen Cannon, a Federalist Society member. Look, check out the video I did about the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo. Just, just look up Cliff Schechter's YouTube channel, The Takedown. I did a whole video on this, who these guys are, what they're doing, how they funneled billions of dollars into electing the and getting in place the most insane judges in the world. Eileen Cannon, this Trump appointee, this lame duck Trump appointee, gave him a ruling that legal analysts think is 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 pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. And that is going to slow down the investigation. Paul, our dual political and legal analyst, former attorney, assistant attorney general. Paul, what'd you make of that? So if this decision, if a first year law student wrote this decision, they would probably get an F. It's just a bad decision with made up law. She's wrong about all her reasoning. It it ought to be appealed. It probably will be appealed. Procedurally, the idea of a judge saying to the Justice Department, well, you have all these documents and you've already reviewed all these documents and you've already figured out what's in the documents and what's not in the documents and you've figured out how they impact your investigation, but you can't use them anymore in your investigation. That's just stupid. That's ineffective and stupid. And her reasoning uh, that that Trump may have some executive privilege and oh poor guy he could suffer reputational damage given that a warrant was issued laying out crimes for which the FBI was given a warrant by a neutral magistrate to search for evidence of crime and apparently which they have discovered bucket loads of evidence of various crimes but trying to put her, insert herself in the middle of the criminal investigation based on, oh, Donald Trump's reputation is is par excellence. It is special. He is unique. Well, no person is above the law and no criminal, not even Donald Trump, the head of a mafia-type crime family, 
is above the law. It's just, and it's a bad decision. It's badly reasoned, poorly written, and she has done her duty for the guy who appointed her. It's it's a it's a travesty. And some have gone as far to say is she's guilty of obstructing justice. So it's a it's a mess. Hopefully it will result in some delay, but not total delay. And it shows you what happens when the judiciary is not impartial, but is but are hacks. And uh, that's what Trump, that's what that's the legacy of an, an yet another yet another legacy of Donald Trump, a federal bench filled with hacks. Alicia, in the 45 seconds we have left, I invite you to weigh in on this down deep in the weeds special master issue or offer more SAT words to our listeners. Well, I think due diligence, is, is that something, like, is not a legal term? It is. I, I, I don't, see, I just use a legal term. Is that on SATs? I don't know. It's been a long time. Look, I completely support the decision by the judge. And let me explain why. Because Donald Trump, to Paul's point, is unique. He is quote unquote special. He is a former president of the United States of America. I think all diligence should be given to whatever is done in this process because of his position as former president. Look, some people are going to criticize anything that's done in favor of Donald Trump. Some people are going to criticize anything that's done in favor of the FBI. I think the majority of Americans were kind of in the middle, like, what's going on here? When I, what I said when this first went down was they better have been looking for something big. They better have found what it is and they better speak to the American people. We're still in that we don't know. No matter how much we all think we know, we don't know. If a judge, if, if Donald Trump says, I want a third party to review to make sure these documents, they're allowed to look at them, they should be looking at them, they are classified, they aren't classified, they are executive privilege, do it. Do everything you have to do to ensure that this process is done right for the American people to at least attempt to believe whatever the outcome is. On that Rob Dignagian note, we are all out of time. That's for not Paul and Alicia, that is. Google it. We'll see you next time.